0: Listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for May 2nd, 2021, the fifth Sunday of Easter. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. There's a great deal of confusion these days, I think, about what Christians believe about sex, gender, and Marriage. Perhaps this is a heavy topic for 10 o'clock in the morning, but these are questions which are raised by our first lesson from the Acts of the Apostles. This this confusion about what Christians believe regarding sex, gender, and marriage stems in large part, I think, from many Christian denominations and organizations' long-standing opposition to same-sex marriage in our country. And subsequent to the 2015 Supreme Court ruling, which expanded marriage rights to same-sex couples, their pursuit of religious rights exemptions to non-discrimination laws, protecting same-sex couples, trans people, and so on. Regardless of the legal merits or failings of those arguments, or how we think we ought best to square protections for civil rights and religious liberty given the fact of religious dissent on such questions. Regardless of the legal argument, which is an important and interesting one, what I want to raise with you this morning is the fact that I find religious dissent on these questions to be something of a curiosity. Given that our reading from the book of Acts this morning points Christians in exactly the opposite direction. The opposite direction from a Christianity thought to be incompatible with the expansion of marriage beyond male-female couples, for instance, or incompatible with the full inclusion of the broad range of people who today may identify as trans, whether they have transitioned from one gender to another or they simply do not identify straightforwardly as either a man or a woman. Some context and background on where we come on the scene in our lesson from Acts is helpful. So Philip is one of the seven people who were chosen by the church in Jerusalem to serve in a ministry of diaconia, which is Greek for service, in the sixth chapter of Acts There's basically two chapters before where our reading picks up. Philip, like the first Christian martyr Stephen, is a predecessor of those in the church today, in the Episcopal Church, anyway, who are ordained as deacons, right? So in the Episcopal Church, we have three orders of ordained ministry. Deacons, priests, and bishops. And these seven people in Acts chapter 6 are the first deacons. And people like Philip and Stephen devoted themselves, they were charged by the church in Jerusalem with the interpretation of the gospel of the church to the world, to proclaim the good news and share it with the world, and then to share the needs of the world with the church, with particular concern for the poor and those who have been widowed. and. Philip has been preaching and healing in the region of Samaria when he, the text says, is led by the Spirit to go south to Gaza. And on his way, he runs into a eunuch who works in the royal court of the kingdom of Cush in what is now Sudan. And Philip has the most marvelous exchange with this eunuch. An exchange in which the eunuch explains that he's been reading one of the suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah, passages which were particularly dear to Jesus himself, and which seemed to be a part of Jesus' self-conception, Jesus' own understanding of who he was and what he was about. So the eunuch has been reading these suffering servant songs and asks Philip about them, and Philip reveals to him the ways that these words were embodied and transformed by Jesus in his life and in his death, and then shares with him the good news of his resurrection. At the end of which, Philip and the eunuch come to some water. And the eunuch has been so taken with what Philip has shared with him that he asks Philip to baptize him right then and there. No waiting for catechism class, no waiting for Sunday school, just right then, baptize me here. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip agrees. And after Philip baptizes him, he is snatched away by the Spirit of the Lord to continue his work, it says, leaving the eunuch to go on rejoicing. It's totally, extraordinarily beautiful. An encounter of two strangers that ends in an incredibly holy place. And it's even more beautiful when we consider exactly who eunuchs were. the word eunuch encompassed a wide range of people in the ancient world including those whom we today might consider intersex as well as men who had been voluntarily castrated for medical or religious reasons both of those were possibilities in the ancient world and those who had been involuntarily castrated and made slaves or servants of others we don't know what kind of eunuch this person was. But what we can be sure of is that he was looked upon with great suspicion by the culture which surrounded him. Neither Greco-Roman nor Jewish culture looked well upon eunuchs, particularly. Eunuchs were suspicious characters in the ancient world. They were often thought to be sexually deviant, and their ambiguously gendered status meant that they were often given access to traditionally women's spaces in households. So it's not unusual that, Phil, that the eunuch, which Philip meets, worked in the court of a queen. That's par for the course for a eunuch's life. And they were frequently suspected of being the, those women's extramarital lovers and for being good at getting away with it. And those are the literary tropes that are scattered throughout the ancient world at this time. Now, eunuchs were not pre-modern gay or lesbian or trans people, but they did fall outside what their culture considered to be ordinary gendered and sexual life. And they suffered ostracization, rejection, and suspicion because of it. That's the parallel. And part of what's so extraordinary about this story to me is just how much of a non- issue this person's being a eunuch is to Philip. The author of Acts clearly thought that it was significant enough to note, but it's all stated very matter-of-factly, as though he were remarking about the color of his hair or something. and Without much explanation or even the signaling of the need for an explanation, which is something of a curiosity, given that the book of Deuteronomy prohibits eunuchs from entering into the congregation of Yahweh for all the reasons that I just shared. So there's no explanation giving, no signaling of a need for explanation, just a statement of who this person is. And in the conversation related to us, Philip never asks him about his being a eunuch at all. There's no interrogation about his sex life. There's no question of, well, what kind of a eunuch are you, the good kind or the bad kind? There's none of that. It doesn't figure in his decision-making calculus at all. Just a description of who this person happens to be. And this is because, I think, Christianity of the kind which Philip represents. To be clear, true Christian faith, I believe, does not stand or fall on the recognition of an absolute difference between the sexes. Rather, it stands or falls on the radically singular and irreducible dignity of each and every human being as an individual, an individual creature loved into existence by God himself and made uniquely in his image and likeness. Christianity does not see the world as made up of two constituencies, men on the one side, women on the other, one from Mars and one from Venus, to which everyone must then be assigned and then act accordingly. And whose complementary relationship is the single good and expression of romantic love. I think Christianity sees the world rather as a diverse and individuated multitude whose collective sum total reflects the effulgent splendor of the single divine essence. Each person called in a different way to refract the one divine glory, which is too great for any one of them exhaustively to replicate. Those are the values and convictions which Christians cannot abide being transgressed. It is not respect for sexual difference, but respect for persons that Christians rightly after Philip the Evangelist ought to have a vested interest in. And the correct answer to, well, what is to prevent me from being baptized or married or ordained is or ought to be nothing, nothing, nothing at all, nothing except the obligations of the calling which God has implanted in one's heart. The peculiar shape of the life by which God means for one to participate in the reconciliation of the world His Son Jesus Christ redeemed. The life that when one lives it makes one flourish and be joyful. And that life may or may not, that calling from God may or may not, Involve what our world considers to be ordinary male or female or heterosexual life. At the end of the day, and at the end of days, the standard by which human beings, all of us, will be distinguished is how faithful we were to the commands of our God, not how faithful we were to our genitalia. So the questions that ought first to occur to Christians shouldn't be, are you a man or are you a woman? Or are you straight? Or are you gay? Or are you bi? And so on. The questions that ought first to occur to us, I think, are, who are you? Who has loved you? Who do you love? What gives you life? And however it is that we answer these questions, the one that follows from them is the same before all of us. How good and beautiful was your life? How steady and steadfast was your devotion to the people, places, causes, institutions to which you were committed? The rest is accidental non-essential commentary, I think. It's worth remembering, always, that the only thing Philip needed to baptize his friend was some water. And the only thing that any of us ever need to love somebody is life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.